I'm going to read Acts 8, 25 through 40. And would you stand if you are able as I read? And hear the word of the Lord. So when they had solemnly testified and spoke the word of the Lord, they started back to Jerusalem and were preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. But an angel of the Lord spoke to Philip, saying, Get up and go south to the road that descends from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert road. So he got up and went, and there was an Ethiopian eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. And he had come to Jerusalem to worship. And he was returning and sitting in his chariot and was reading the prophet Isaiah. Then the Spirit said to Philip, Go up and join this chariot. Philip ran up and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and said, Do you understand what you are reading? And he said, Well, how could I unless someone guides me? And he invited invited Philip to come and sit with him. Now the passage of Scripture which he was reading was this, He was led as a sheep to slaughter, and as a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he does not open his mouth. In humiliation his judgment was taken away. Who will relate his generation? For his life is removed from the earth. The eunuch answered Philip and said, Please tell me, of whom does the prophet say this, of himself or someone else? Then Philip opened his mouth and began from this scripture he preached Jesus to him. And they went along the road, when, as they went along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, Look, water, what prevents me from being baptized? And Philip said, If you believe with all your heart, you may. And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And he ordered the chariot to stop, and they both went down into the water, Philip as well as the eunuch, and he baptized him. When they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord snatched Philip away, and the eunuch no longer saw him, but went on his way rejoicing. But Philip found himself at Azotus, and as he passed through, he kept preaching the gospel to all the cities until he came to Caesarea. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. God of glory, we come for a holy moment carved out with intentionality that we might hear. That we might come to your word, the banquet, and given new hunger and new thirst and new eyes and new ears, we might come to your word to be fed, to be nourished, to be strengthened, to be encouraged and comforted, to be afflicted and convicted, that you might speak and do your will amongst us and in us and through us. And Father, I now pray that whatever proceeds from this mouth that is not of you would fall to the floor and remain unheard. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. Lord Jesus, you said heaven and earth may pass away, but your word will never pass away. So Lord, even now, this morning, Would you speak? Living triune God, speak. Father, speak. Your children are listening. Have mercy in the name of Christ. Amen. You may be seated. 
This has become my favorite water bottle. This is our uh, Awaken Youth Ministry. These are our youth ministry water bottles that are available for a $50 donation. <laughs> I'm just kidding, but really, no, I, I don't even know if we have any left. Um, in college, I, um, I don't know if you guys know this, I was called to the ministry uh, while I was in college. I was undergoing that freshman uh, identity crisis where I had, I had all of a sudden, and I guess it was from the Holy Spirit, all of a sudden I felt this overwhelming burden that I had to figure out exactly what was going to happen with my life. And that little bit of that was naive and silly, but I do think it was from the Holy Spirit. As I began to search, I went to, uh, I went to college believing at first that I was going to be like a meteorologist and, uh, and then I learned that meteorology has a lot of physics and physics has a lot of math. And I immediately bailed on that. Um, and so I began to search again. I loved biology and I loved uh, the outside and so outdoors. And so I thought I was going to be something like a DNR guy or something, uh, which still sounds really cool. But uh, don't worry, I'm, I'm in it in this now. Uh, but during all of that, I was invited to, to preach. And long story short, uh, I, the Lord called me to ministry through my home church, asking me to come preach on a youth Sunday. And I was like, the sec- at least the second option, if not the third option. I learned later. Uh, but I, I preached Matthew 8 and uh, about the foxes have no hole, holes, you know, whatever. The Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. And, uh, but after that summer... My, after my freshman year of college, I immediately, I stayed at, I went to Presbyterian College up the road, and I immediately shifted all of my energy toward preparing for ministry, all of my energy towards preparing for ministry. So I uh, changed my major, I changed my classes, I was one semester away from my language requirement with, from finishing Spanish, but I dropped that and I picked up Greek and I started taking Hebrew and I took New Testament and Old Testament, which was an adventure at a very, then a very uh, theologically liberal school and now even more theologically liberal than it was then. It was an adventure, but God preserved me through it. Uh, but that's that my sophomore year, I stepped into a philosophy class with all upperclassmen. And uh, I made a fool of myself, I think, the very first day. And I, uh, I'm not going to tell you that story so you don't think less of me. But I was given a textbook to read, to read this passage from about a certain philosopher. And I, know, I didn't know that I didn't know that I had no idea how to say his name. But I didn't have any idea how to say his name. Uh, and so it was Descartes. And so if you know how to spell Descartes, it looks like Descartes. So I spent 15 minutes at the beginning of this class saying Descartes this and Descartes. And then finally the professor's like, so what do we think about Descartes? And I'm thinking, who is Descartes? What do we... <laughs> but one of the questions that came up, and I forgot which philosopher from, I, don't, I barely remember that class, uh, is that, that, that this philosophical question that if a tree falls in the woods and there's nowhere, no one there to hear it, does it make a sound? If a tree falls in the woods and there's no one there to hear it, does it make a sound? Now, I'm not here to answer the philosophical riddle. You might think it's rather absurd, and it really depends on how you define sound. Uh, but the question I want to ask you uh, is, if the gospel is preached and no one's there to hear it, has the gospel been preached? If the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ has been shared, if it has been proclaimed, and there's no one there to hear it, has it been shared? 
If I were, as I sometimes do, uh, you might think I'm uh, neurotic. Uh, sometimes I come here on Mondays or Tuesdays. I come here in the morning and I'll, I will read scripture out loud and I'll sing some songs. And it's just me and Je- I feel kind of silly telling you this, but it's just me and Jesus in here. Uh, and it's very therapeutic. It's very worshipful for me. Uh, but if I were to sit up here and preach this sermon tomorrow, I don't think there's anywhere I could say the gospel was preached on Monday morning because there was no one there to hear it. And part of, and as that wonderful hymn, I love to tell the story. I love to tell the story for those who have never heard. And I love to tell the story for those who know it best. And I feel like many of you in here, so far as I know you, are among those who know it best. And the beautiful thing is, is that we continue to need that gospel. But there are many, many who have never heard. There are many, many who have never heard the name of Jesus. They've never heard of God's love. They've never heard of a biblical worldview. They've, ne- they've never heard these things. I remember the first time I went, I was thinking I was in sixth grade, and I went on a mission trip to Plymouth, Massachusetts. And we were, the way my, my home church did it, and we're, I think it's cool, the, uh, the middle school, high school, they would help out with VBS one week, and then like the next week or two weeks later, they would go somewhere and help a smaller church or a rural church or a, a poorer church help them put on VBS. And they would, the youth would just supply all the workers. There were a handful of adult volunteers to make sure we didn't get too crazy, which we got a little crazy. Um, but I was in sixth grade and I was very, very intimidated. And I remember sitting around the circle and I was, I was reading the lesson because I didn't know what else to do. And this young girl, I don't know how old she was. I mean, I wasn't that much older than her. Uh, she said, who is Jesus? Not, as in like, wh- what is Jesus? As in she had never heard Jesus. She only knew Jesus as, a, uh, as something you say when you, you, know, you shut your finger in a car door or you stub your toe. And that was, I mean, I'm not going to tell you how old I was because I, honestly, I don't remember what year that was, but it was a long time ago. And dear ones, our culture has gotten even profoundly more, if you will, post-Christian. And there are people, and there are people of the generation, next generation and the generation behind them and the generation behind them, uh, for some of us, that would be in the same boat and they are in Elgin, South Carolina with our preponderance of churches. So let's answer the question, which I think I've already done. If the good news of of the gospel of Jesus Christ is preached and there's no one there to hear it, has it been preached? No. No. What's happening in the book of Acts is chapter 8 is this great segue chapter. It's a a step. Uh, what happens? We close chap- chapter 6. We didn't close chapter 6, but we talked about chapter 6 and the institution of leaders, this, uh, this plurality of leadership that erupts in the Jerusalem church. And if you know what happens in the next couple of ways, like there, there's Stephen is one of those seven proto-deacons that are appointed there. And he is this great preacher filled with the Holy Spirit. And chapter 7 is this elongated sermon that he gives when he's accused of going against the traditions of the Jewish uh, teachings, the Old Testament. He's preaching against the law and he's preaching against the temple, they say. 
And what he begins to say in this great long chapter, chapter 7, which if you need to get some gr- a grasp on Old Testament history, go read Acts chapter 7. Just read it a couple times. It'll give you some great coat hangers to understand the rest of the Old Testament. But we know Peter gives this elongated, long sermon testifying to Jesus. And by the end of chapter 7, he is stoned. He's murdered uh, because of his faithful witness to Jesus. We learn at the beginning of chapter 8 that Saul, who would who we also know as Paul, uh, is there at the beginning of chapter 8. He, he's, they're collecting the coats. He's approving of the execution. He thinks that this is a great, de- great idea that those who would proclaim the name of Jesus as the Son of God, crucified and risen, should be stoned. And what happens is that from this scattering, the church in, the, in the Jerusalem scatters. And what I want you to link to what's happening in Acts chapter 7 and 8 and 9 and 10 is that I want you to link what's happening here with the outline that the, the well, he's not an apostle, but what Luke gives us in Acts 1 8. And wait in Jerusalem, you will receive power to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth, or to the uttermost parts of the earth. That was Jesus' mandate. That's the great commission, if you will, in the book of Acts. And so far, through six, seven chapters, the church had not done that yet. And so God, in His infinite wisdom, allows this persecution to arise, and it propels everyone except for the apostles, it propels them out of Jerusalem, and as they go, they preach the word. And one of those is Philip, who is also one of the seven. And Philip is the evangelist of the New Testament par excellence outside of Jesus. I mean, there are other evangelists, Paul, right, of course. Uh, But Philip is an evangelist. He is a New Testament office bearer, if you will. Uh, of an evangelist. And he goes preaching the word. He is among those who are scattered out. But you see, the first place that he goes in a portion of chapter 8 that I didn't read was to the city or a city in Samaria. You'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, the area around Jerusalem, and Samaria. First stop. The Samarians were considered half-breeds. They were both theological half-breeds and ethnic half-breeds. And so there was a great hatred between the Jews to the south and the Samaritans to the north. And we see some of that popping up with Jesus' ministry, namely with the woman at the well. Um, But Jesus always uses the Samaritan as a hero or a heroine. The good Samaritan. Uh, the, The leper who turns back is a Samaritan. So Jesus is tearing down that wall, but... So Samaria believes, and we're not going to get into everything that happens early chapter 8. I'm just trying to catch you up on where we are. But we see Acts 1-8 unfurling before us. And all of the book of Acts is the unfurling of Acts 1-8. To the uttermost parts of the earth. And we continue with the unfurling of Acts 1-8. As we continue to see the gospel go to every tribe, every tongue, every nation, every generation. So after his stint in Samaria, he hears the Lord uh, say, get up and go south. This is verse 26 that I did read. Get up and go south to the road that descends from Jerusalem to Gaza. 
Gaza would be, well, you probably know modern Gaza. There was an ancient Gaza. Uh, but this is uh, one of the cities of the Philistines. Would have, would have been one of the Philistines. So he's basically going south towards Egypt. Don't worry about it. Uh, but there's an, there's an obedience that Philip models that we need to take note of. So kind of pressing in, if you have an outline before you, if you're trying to follow along, or if, that's fine. If you're just listening, that's fine too. Um, but the main idea, the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ is only good news if it is heard, and it is only heard if it is shared. The good news of Jesus Christ is only good news if it is heard, and it is only heard if it is shared. So the first, the call of evangelism is a call that is received from God himself to take the good news of Jesus to people who do not know him. And while Philip is uniquely gifted and he uniquely bears this office, he, this, the, the, the command that the Holy Spirit gives to Peter here in verse 26 is a, a, at least mirrors or a continuation of what he gives to the church as a whole in the Great Commission. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. As a sub-point to that, with probably millions of sub-points under Jesus' command, where he commands and compels individual believers to make the gospel known in individual spaces, one of those million sub-points under Jesus' great commission is this command from the Holy Spirit to Philip, the evangelist, to go south, that God had an appointment for him. That God, who works all things out according to the counsel of his will, Ephesians 1.11, had someone on the road to Gaza who needed to hear the good news of Jesus. That there has to be, if we're going to embody this, if we're going to obey Jesus' his great command or great commission, both of them, we must be people who are willing and able, but we are willing, above all, to obey Jesus. That the task of making Jesus known is not just for those who are called to be evangelists. It's not just for those who are gifted to be evangelists. Those who are gifted for evangelism are those who help the church do evangelism. They're not just those who do evangelism themselves. Too often in Southern Baptist life, we have, there's a whole, I looked them up this week. I mean, it's no problem with it. There's a whole conference of Southern Baptist evangelists. Lord bless them, right? I'm not knocking that. But sometimes in our desire in Southern Baptist life for, for expediency, for ease, right? So we develop the cooperative program so that we can support missionaries and church planning. We develop this conference of evangelists so that, but in our mind, we think that we can just sort of ship off our responsibility to those other people. No, these institutions, conferences, and missionary boards, they exist to help us do what Jesus has called us to do. There aren't any conferences, there aren't any mission boards in the New Testament. They're simply the church. Those things exist to help us do what Jesus has told us to do. And so we must be people, while you might not be a Philip, I'm not a Philip, there aren't any Philips left, there's one Philip in this instance, but God does have appointments for you and for me. And if we are not ready for them, we very well might miss them. If we're not willing for them, we very well might just simply avoid them. 
And avoidance in that instance is not just avoidance. It's not just apathy. It's disobedience. And Jesus says in John John chapter 14, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. For the love of Jesus and for the love of your neighbor, consider who might be in your orbit that needs to hear Jesus. They need to hear the good news of Jesus. For you, in your way, in your space, in your place, with your life and your work, your retirement, your family, you have a particular, you have a particular role to play. You might not be the evangelist that's like Billy Graham drawing in thousands. I'm not that guy either. But that doesn't mean you can't do the work of following Jesus and saying, Lord, put somebody in my path who doesn't know you. And let me give witness to you. And I promise you, you need a heart that says yes to that question. Will you go? If you say yes to that question genuinely and fully, dear ones, that is of infinitely greater weight than walking through some evangelism training that you're going to forget and not use five minutes from now. The key to our evangelism isn't more training. Now, we need training. We need equipping. Don't, not, don't misunderstand me. But the key to our evangelism is hearts that burn hot for the gospel of Jesus and that long to see lost people come to know him. That is the beginning spot. That's a heart that can be taught by God and equipped for the work. But if we're just saying, hey, we I really feel guilty, it's like prayer. You know, I really feel guilty. I don't ever share my faith. I haven't shared my faith in 10 years or ever. And I don't know how to do it. It's super scary. I'm just, let me go through this, this equipping. And I think I'm going to be all good then. I'm going to have all the answers to all the questions that any unbeliever is ever going to ask you. And you're not. I can't even begin to tell you some of the, just left field doesn't describe it left nebula of whatever galaxy. And I'm like, ah, I don't know. That's okay. That's not your job there to answer all of the questions. Your job is to say, this is Jesus. This is who he is. And this is what he's done. But at hearts that are willing to obey Christ. There's so much of the Christian life that we're so scared to talk about obedience because we think people are going to drop into works-based salvation. When I tell you to obey Jesus, I'm not saying obey Jesus to be saved. I'm saying obey Jesus because you are saved. Live like a saved person and follow Jesus. When, I mean, when I ask people when they're baptized, we'll talk about baptism, Lord willing, if I get there in 10 years when I finally get to the end of the sermon. Not really 10 years. Maybe dog years. Um, that... Is Jesus Christ your only Lord and Savior? Right? We, 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 we trust Jesus as Lord. Jesus is Lord is one of the first confessions that Christians give in the New Testament. That means Jesus is the boss. Jesus directs my way. He's my king. He tells me this way and that way and I do it. Now, we don't do that perfectly, but we want to have a heart that is ready and eager to say yes to Jesus because we've experienced such a great grace given to us in Jesus. So the call of evangelism is to go, get up and go. And it might simply be for you, hey, I'm going to get up and go to Food Lion. You're going to wander all the shelves that don't have anything. I'm sorry. Um, I felt like, it's like a hurricane the other day I was in there. I was like... 
what is going on? Just looking for some bread. Uh, but that I'm, and you pray to the Lord, help me to do what I'm already doing, but to do it on purpose. To do it with an intentionality that if you would just give me the opportunity, Jesus, that I'd be able to say, hey, have you heard about how much God loves you? Maybe you, you bump into that person you haven't seen in a long time and you're, you're all lingering over the, the absence of yogurt in the yogurt freezer section thing. And you say, hey, you know, you, you just sort of step into it. And you'll find the next time you step into it, it's a lot easier than the first time. But you will have to have a heart that longs to obey Jesus. And part of that is we have to repent of disobeying Jesus. There's a lot to be said there, but let's move. The context of evangelism, number two. And I want to refer you, I was going to read this, but I don't want to take the time. But Romans chapter 10, 8 through 17. Romans chapter 10, 8 through 17. Um, Everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. How can they call upon the one they've never believed in? How can they believe upon the one who's never heard? How can they hear if no one's ever been sent, never preached? How can they preach if no one's ever been sent? For hearing comes by the word of Christ. There's no faith in Jesus for a gospel someone's never heard. All right, words are necessary. The context of evangelism. Philip in Samaria primarily preaches to crowds, verse 6. He primarily preaches to big groups of people sharing the gospel, and the crowds hear, some of the crowds believe. Now, there's a shift in context in this passage. So he listens to the Holy Spirit. And he got up and went, and there was an Ethiopian eunuch. There was a man who had come from Ethiopia. Now, Ethiopia, at this turn, in the early ancient Near East, the first century, this is not talking about Ethiopia as we know today, geopolitically. This is probably talking about the, uh, the southern part of the Nile. So you're looking at southern Egypt, northern Sudan, down to maybe Khartoum. So that area, south... Modern day southern Egypt, modern day northern Sudan. This is where this man is from. And he is an Ethiopian eunuch of the, the uh, court official of Candace. Candace is not just a name, but it was also a, uh, a title, almost like queen, uh, uh, queen of the Ethiopians. Uh, and he was in charge of all of her treasures. So he was, he was a servant in the queen's court. So he was a big deal in charge of a lot of money. And he is some point has converted to Judaism. He's not described for us as the first Gentile believer. That's in chapter 10. Uh, so he's at some point converted to Judaism, but in all likelihood, this is a man who is a black African. And by the way, they're not rare in the New Testament. There's probably a, a man of darker hue, of a higher melanin count, who bear, carries the cross of Jesus, Simon of Cyrene, which is Libya. So all of our lily white paintings are probably wrong. I'm seeing if y'all have like stones. Okay. Uh, that's not the point of this. But he is a man from a distant land, but somewhere along the line, he's, he's encountered the, the Jewish message and he's believed. And so he has come up to worship in Jerusalem and he's on his way back and he has enough money to have a scroll he doesn't have, they don't have, uh, they don't have like codices, they don't have books. He didn't have a book of Isaiah. He had a scroll of Isaiah, and there he's reading Isaiah 53. But 
Philip leads him, I mean, the Holy Spirit leads Philip into a personal encounter with a man who doesn't know Jesus. Sometimes you're able to share the gospel with a bunch of people, but more often than not, you are going to have the opportunity to share the gospel with one person or with two people, three people. So the context of evangelism and that this man is, I mean, there's a chariot driver, I assume, but he's there on his own. And God leads him to a personal encounter, personal encounter with the gospel through Jesus, the content of evangelism. So he's reading Isaiah. He's reading Isaiah 53, which is the last servant song. All of the servant songs are about Jesus. But Isaiah 53 is where we learn that he was pierced for our transgressions. And uh, so the Ethiopian Jewish man, Jewish convert or Jewish by birth, we don't know necessarily. Uh, The Ethiopian is probably imbibed, he's probably believing the first century messianic expectations of everybody else that the Messiah was going to come in riding on a chariot. He's going to come in with military might and an army behind him and that that's the way the kingdom of God was going to be realized. And so he doesn't know what to do with Isaiah 53 about... um, Oh, sorry, I haven't turned my page yet. Uh, He was led as a sheep to the slaughter. He doesn't know who is he talking about. Of whom is the writer talking about? Himself or someone else? What a great, great, insightful question. The content of evangelism we see in verse 35. What what makes up the message of evangelism? If you're trying to bring the gospel to someone, what is at the heart and center of that message? Then Philip opened his mouth. He didn't just say, well, it's good enough he has the prophet Isaiah in his lap. Dear ones, it's great to hand somebody a Bible. It's great to hand somebody a New Testament or an Old Testament, Psalms, Proverbs. But you got to open your mouth. Philip opened his mouth and opening your mouth, you got to speak. Now, pause, as I I might have, like, offended your sensibilities there. I'm not saying that someone can't read the Bible and be converted to Christ. There's so many stories of that. But I'm saying the, uh, the bread and butter means of evangelism is someone coming. They are, they are an embodied witness of Jesus. A person bringing the gospel to another person or other people. So all of the other things that we might do to share the gospel, they are good and holy and we should continue to do them. But we have to understand that they are tier two and tier three methods. So if your method is to hand somebody a Bible and go about your way, that's better than nothing, but it would be better if you shared the gospel with them. If you hand them a tract, that's good, but a better thing is say, hey, can I read over that with you? Can we talk about it together? Now, certain contexts, you're just going to hand it. Sometimes you're just passing it out. I understand that. But the bread and butter method in the Bible of bringing the gospel to someone else is by you speaking it. Whether you're opening the scriptures together, whether you're opening a track together, whether you're opening your life together, saying this is my personal testimony, but your personal testimony better get to where Jesus is the center of it, not just you. If, it, if your personal testimony is only about you, you haven't shared the gospel. You've gotten really close, but you haven't done it. 
Then Philip opened his mouth, beginning from this scripture, he preached Jesus to him. I love that. I just love when the, the, throughout the book of Acts, so often we say he preached Jesus, that there's a unique presence of Christ present when he, the gospel is preached, that the content of the gospel, the content of our evangelism is Jesus. Man, it's too quiet for that. We, we don't need to tell people about everything other than Jesus. That's not sharing the gospel. An invitation to church is a good and holy thing, but it's not sharing the gospel. You should do that, by the way. Understand me. I'm not just saying those things are bad, but don't say I've done, a, a, I've preached the gospel to someone, I've shared the gospel with someone when you brought them here for me to do it for you, which I love to do. I don't mind. But try to do it yourself too. Which, by the way, an invite from you is infinitely, no, it's multiply more impactful than an invite from me, by the way. Statistics show. If someone is invited to come to church by a friend, there's something in like, there's, or if people, you probably could do it yourselves. If we were to poll and say, how many of you came to church for the first time? And you would say, I was invited by a friend or family member, probably. Um, or maybe invited by the pastor, maybe you saw some ads or something else. But statistics show that by and large, people are invited by a friend. So I'm not knocking that, but that's not evangelism. That's like pre-evangelism. That's the, that's the charcuterie board. That's the cheese board with the salami and the stuff on it. That's the appetizer before the meal, okay? So he opened his mouth, but the content of our evangelism is the person and the work of Jesus Christ. We can't separate those two. We can't just talk because there's so many heresies running around that corrupt the person of Jesus while trying to retain the work of Jesus. If the, if the gospel you're believing has Jesus as something less than God, as something not human, then you have not preached the biblical gospel. If the Jesus of your gospel is simply a man who got with it, that's not the gospel. Because man cannot give his life as a ransom for man, book of Proverbs. It had to be Jesus, truly God, truly man. We need the person of Jesus and we need the work of Jesus. So what has the eternal son of God who took on flesh, what has he done? He lived a perfect life of true righteousness before his God. He obeyed every jot and tittle of the law of God, following the will of God, and he died. Not swooned. He didn't seem to die. It wasn't a big trick. He died on the tree of Golgotha. He was crucified upon a cross. He was humiliated, as this citation from the prophet Isaiah tells us in humiliation, his judgment was taken away. He was crucified for the sins of the world, according to the scriptures like Isaiah 53. And he didn't stay dead, but he rose. He rose victoriously. He rose bodily, truly, and he has ascended to the right hand of God the Father, and he will come again to judge the living and the dead. Believe in this Jesus. Trust in this gospel message. For everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord Jesus will be saved. But the 
opposite is true as well. If you do not, if you do not call upon the name of Jesus, if you do not trust in the name of Jesus, there is no salvation available. So those sins that were pinned upon Christ, for those who trust in Jesus, they're pinned upon Christ. If you do not trust in Jesus, your sins will fall upon your own head for eternity. The content of our evangelism is that an embodied witness shares words of Christ with another person, of his person and his work. And finally, the confession of evangelism, the great goal of evangelism. It's not simply enough to say, here are the facts. Here's Jesus. This is who he is. This is Jesus. This is what he's done. Have a good day. No, the message of the New Testament tells us that we must respond. That it is due to you, if you have never trusted in Jesus, for you to respond to that message of the crucified and risen Lord, what it means is that you must repent, you must turn from your sins and believe upon Him alone, saying there's no other name given among men by which I may be saved except for the name of Jesus. So you repent and believe. There is a response. There is a confession of faith. And so the the eunuch, after hearing the message of Jesus, he, he looks for water and he finds this water. He says, what's preventing me from being baptized somewhere in Philip's presentation, he he remarks that if you believe in Jesus, you should be baptized in Jesus' name as well as the Father and the Spirit. That part of our public confession of faith is baptism. So get this straight. Too often in Baptist churches, we've confused something. How much time do I got? Enough. Somebody says enough. We, we confuse walking the aisle with a public confession of faith. Whereas in the New Testament, the public confession of faith happens up there. So what happens down here is a preamble to that. You understand? That's a public confession of faith. We are confessing to the world that Jesus is Lord. My, my, as Patrick mentioned, I'm dead and I'm alive. So the eunuch says... Uh, In verse 37, it might not show up in your Bible. There's text critical issues that I don't have time to get into. Don't stress, okay? Just don't stress. Just don't. I know you might be stressing as I say it, but don't stress. Um, But I I think there's a a level of legitimacy to it. Uh, And so he confesses belief in Jesus Christ as the Son of God, and they they both go down into the water. I'm not going to make the comments. It's probably not sprinkling if they're both down in the water. It's not pouring. He probably got immersed. Uh, And as soon as he came up, the spirit snatched Philip away. So this man makes a public confession of faith. I believe and I'm dunked and I'm I'm gone. Philip's gone. And the Ethiopian goes rejoicing. So that there is a change that happens and it is visible. It is demonstrated through baptism. And this man goes then rejoicing. And where does he go? He doesn't go back to Jerusalem. He goes back to Africa. He goes to Africa. That the earliest, and now this is, I'm not, we don't have time for this, but some of the earliest witnesses of Christianity find root in Africa. 
Mark, the writer of the gospel, the first gospel that's written chronologically, goes to Africa as a missionary. He's killed by being dragged by a rope in Alexandria. Their ancient faith in Africa, just for what it's worth. So that one person that you, change, you, you share the gospel with, it might change a continent. You might be sharing the gospel with the next, not, not that there would be a next one, but someone like a, a D.L. Moody or a C.H. Spurgeon. You might be sharing the gospel with a Billy Graham or, or a John Stott or R.C. Sproul or John MacArthur. Fill in the blank of these great profound, or somebody who's simply going to believe upon Jesus. They're going to love their wives. They're going to serve their children. They're going to be faithful in their church until they go home for glory, giving testimony along the way. You don't know who you're sharing with. But the one thing you do know is that the person to whom you are speaking is not mortal. You know, because scripture says that eternity has been placed into the hearts of men. Ecclesiastes 3.11. That the person that you're speaking to, though their body may die, they will exist for eternity. And part of the turn that could happen, because you said, Lord, yes, it's going to be awkward. It's going to be difficult. They might ask me something I don't know, but I'm going to share Jesus because Jesus is awesome. He's beautiful and he's wonderful and he's valuable. And part of the turn is that that person who is not mortal might be turned to glory rather than hell. They might be turned to heaven rather than hell. In that moment, by the Holy Spirit, because of your faithfulness. There's a great C.S. Lewis quote that I don't remember about that. But then he says, no one that you meet is mortal. Everyone is an immortal. Either they're being changed into the most beautiful creature you could ever imagine, or they're being transformed into a ghoul of hell. Something along those lines. Death is a gateway both for the Christian and for the wicked. And that should sober us. And it should also ignite us. But what should drive us more is simply the beauty of Christ. And the glory of Christ. The gospel isn't heard if it isn't shared. It has been given to you. You've been transformed by that powerful message of Christ. I would encourage you, pray. And this is something on Wednesday nights during our Blaney Baptist Church equip time. Um, we're, gonna, we're, we're doing this. Who is one person? Who's one person that you know today is near to God? I mean, near to you, but far from God. Ask God. You might know a handful of them. Ask God for one. And right now, today, say, God, I'm going to start praying that they would know Jesus. And that if it be your will, that I would be the one who shares with them that I'd be able to lead them to trust in Jesus. And just pray. Pray for a willing heart. Pray for obedient hearts. And pray to see the opportunities that the Lord gives. And see what he might do. Let's pray. Father, I pray that this word would be profitable for your purposes and your kingdom. Lord, I do ask that you would encourage your people that this would not be a guilt-inducing necessarily, but that, Lord, you might work conviction that we would be more intensely and intently obedient to your command 
aware of the spiritual realities around us and that we might obey. But Father, there are others who might be in the sound of my voice and they've never heard or if they've heard, they've never believed. I pray, O Lord, that in this moment, this holy moment, that they would heed the call to respond that Jesus is Lord because he has defeated the last enemy, death. He is Lord because he is the second person of the Trinity. He is Lord and he demands our repentance and faith and he promises to bring new life to everyone who trusts in him. So God, if there are some here who have never trusted, would you draw them to yourself? And God, there might still be others who have trusted in you, but they have never made that public through going through the waters of baptism. They've never made that declaration, the old is gone and the new has come. Would you give them grace to make that step in following Jesus? But Lord, there is a way forward for all of us. You have a response for all of us. So would you help us to step into it by the power of the Holy Spirit? For your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.